All right, uh, our, our speaker uh, this morning is Rick Green, and uh, Rick is with Wall Builders. The interesting thing about Rick is, um, uh, much like myself, he, uh, he, he held office, um, although I've, I've held the position as mayor. He was actually uh, elected to the lower house of the Texas uh, legislature. He held that for two terms, and he is the youngest law student. He was 20 years old when he entered into law school at University of Texas um, and, and uh, practiced law, and now he works with wall builders, and he's got this uh, uh, program, Red, White, Blue, and Green, where he travels with his family. He's got adorable kids. Uh, they were here last night, and they put on an amazing presentation. It's actually being filmed uh, for their program today, so you're going to be on camera, so I'm glad you guys took care of yourselves. You look good. You look real good. <laughs> And, uh, and, and Rick has a wonderful presentation, um, uh, Biblical Citizenship in Modern America. And uh, he's going to talk up Texas and how wonderful Texas is. And I just want you to know, he, he's, he's the most humble man he knows. And, uh, and so he's, he's really done a great job. I'm so thankful for him. Uh, the, the last service just absolutely adored the message. Um, and I'm going to get out of the way because you got some good stuff, Rick. So would you welcome warmly Rick Green. Hey, brother man. Appreciate it, man. All right, good morning. It is great to be with a church that truly is salt and light in the community. Um, just, just love your pastor. Love having him on our radio program on Wall Builders Live, and uh, just thankful for what what you guys do. I, I am surprised and 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 frankly shocked that he would let a Texas politician take his pulpit. Um, I, I'm a, unlike him, though. I am a recovering politician. So every Tuesday night I go to a, a meeting, you know, and get up and say, hi, I'm Rick, recovering politician. Uh, just so you know, three years clean off the ballot. I'm getting a coin soon. It's, so my wife is very happy about that. So it's a little more peaceful in our home probably than uh, Pastor Rob's. But um, uh, I actually am very, very thankful uh, for someone that is willing to serve, both in, in the church and in the community and, and in government. Uh, we need more of that. We need more patriots. Uh, not politicians, right? So a politician is only thinking about the next election. A patriot is thinking about the next generation, how to sow into that, how to, how to invest in that, how to be prepared for that. I, I, I'm not sure what you guys are putting in the water out here in California, but I, I had a weird dream last night. I had a dream about your pastor. I'm dreaming about you, Pastor Rob. This is weird. Um, he and I actually showed up in this dream in, in, at hev- in heaven at the same time. Like, we're getting the tour together. You know, I don't know what happened, but we're there at the same time, and St. Peter's showing us around. We get to this little shack. I mean, it's not what you would expect for heaven, right? It's just a little rundown thing, little desk, little cot, you know, little, not, not much to it. And he says to, to Rob, he's like, Pastor, this is going to be your home here in heaven. Of course, my first thought is, man, if the preacher's getting that, what in the world am I going to get? This is bad news. So I get around the corner. It's a big mansion, gold pillars, all this wonderful stuff. And he said, Rick, this is your home in heaven. And I'm confused. And I said, well, I don't get it. I said, why does that, you know, that good and holy man, that pastor, get this little shack and, and I get this big mansion? He said, well, son, you don't understand. You hadn't been here long. He said, we got all the preachers up here we want. You're the first politician to ever make it. We thought we'd do something a little different for you. So uh, th- that's kind of our cynicism, right, towards uh, not just politicians, but, but government in general. And so sometimes we don't want to talk about citizenship and, and how do we actually take our faith and, and, and a biblical worldview uh, into our culture and our society and how do we influence the, the world around us. And, and so today I, I just want to dive into a little bit of the concept of, of biblical citizenship in our country, under our system. How do you do that in a modern America? And so I want to take a little bit of advice out of Psalms 78. And I'm going to read this out of the, the Message Bible. I always joke about the Message Bible is not necessarily what you, where you want to go for your, your deep theology, all right? But it does fit well for this particular verse. I think it, it tells the story uh, of what we want to avoid and what we want to actually do in our culture. So here's what Psalm 78 says. Listen, dear friends, to God's truth. Bend your ears to what I tell you. I'm chewing on the morsel of a proverb. I'll let you in on the sweet old truths. Stories we heard from our fathers, counsel we learned at our mother's knee. We're not keeping this to ourselves. We're passing it along to the next generation. God's fame and fortune, the marvelous things he has done. He planted a witness in Jacob, set his word firmly in Israel, then commanded our parents to teach it to their children. This is so important right here. So the next generation would know and all generations to come. Know the truth and tell the stories to their children so their children can trust in God. Never forget the works of God, but keep his commands to the letter. Heaven forbid they should be like their parents, bullheaded and bad, a fickle and faithless bunch who never stayed true to God. The Ephraimites, armed to the teeth, ran off when the battle began. They were cowards to God's covenant, refused to walk by his word. They forgot what he had done. 
marvels he had done right before their eyes. He performed miracles in plain sight of their parents in Egypt, out on the fields of Zoan. He split the sea and they walked right through it. He piled the waters to the right and the left. He led them by day with a cloud and led them all the night long with a fiery torch. He split rocks in the wilderness, gave them all they could drink from underground springs. He made creeks flow out from sheer rock and water pour out like a river. And all they did was sin even more, rebel in the desert against the high God. How do we prevent that from happening in our nation? How do we prevent the same mistakes the children of Israel made from happening in our communities and in our, in our country? And I think the answer is found in what we just read, that we've got to pass it to the next generation and make sure they know. We've got to make sure they know and future generations know that they know truth, that we teach that truth to them, which means we've got to tell the stories. We've got to tell the stories of what God has done in our nation. We gotta tell the stories of our, the founding of our country. Doesn't mean we sugarcoat the bad things in our history. We tell the good, the bad, and the ugly because even in the bad things we can see what God can do. In the good things we see what God can do. So we tell it all, but we look at it from a providential view, from a biblical view, and it's amazing how incredible the story of America is when we see that truth and we don't whitewash our, our, our story from anything that has to do with faith. That's what we do these days. We, we, we have removed God and the Bible from our history stories. It's, I mean, if they could, they'd sandblast it off the, off the monuments in Washington, D.C. And, and take any mention of God out. You would have to sandblast virtually every monument to do exactly that. And so we want to avoid that. We want to actually tell the story of where we came from and what God's done in American history. I, I look at it like this. I, I think it's like the parable of the talents. If you think back to that parable that Jesus told The servants were given these incredible talents, and they had a choice. They could use them and work with them and multiply them, or out of fear or even out of laziness, they could bury them. And we have a choice when it comes to freedom, freedom and and a free society and citizenship and being able to direct the future of our country is like a talent. And so we've been given this gift, and the question is, are we burying it? Are we not even participating in what God's given us? Or are we afraid to be there? Or maybe we've bought into some of the lies that says we can't take God's word into into that arena. Or are we actually investing in it? Are we studying it? Are we learning how and uh, how do we do this in our culture? And God, what would you like my role to be in, the, in this particular thing? And uh, I think one of the things we've missed in our system of government is that uh, here's the beauty. You're in charge. You get to decide what your government's going to look like. Uh, Jesus said, render unto Caesar what is Caesar's and unto God what is God's. Well, the question is in, in America, in our system, in our Republican form of government, who is Caesar? You, we are exactly right. You're Caesar. You say, wait, Rick. Well, if I'm if I'm Caesar, you know, where's the palace? <laughs> uh, if I'm if I'm Caesar, how do I render unto Caesar what is Caesar's? If I'm Caesar, well, it simply means we have to do our job, our duty under the Constitution, under this system that we've been given. We have to play our role, and that means we, the people, the first three words of the Constitution, have to exercise those freedoms that we've been given. So to do that, though, I, I want to first tell a little bit of the story of, of where we came from and, 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 and certainly lay the foundation for the importance of God's word in a culture and a society. The founders did this. I mean, they talked about the Bible over and over again. They, they, they read the Bible through once a year. They constantly were looking for, how do I apply this uh, to, to what I'm doing in my role in, in government or in business or whatever it might be? Um, many of the founding fathers, they would, they would break out multiple translations of the Bible every morning and, and, and compare and, and uh, just unbelievable. They're, they're studying it. And you, can, and you can begin as you read that and you begin to learn those things about them, you can begin to see the wisdom behind how they designed our system and applied certain scriptures to do that. But it began with a respect for God's word as the instruction manual of life, that, that God's word actually does apply and can be used in every single area. There's no decision you make. There's no area of your life uh, that the Bible doesn't speak to. All the answers are there. Here's the way they put it. There's Noah Webster. He said, all the miseries and evils which men suffer from vice, crime, ambition, injustice, oppression, slavery, and war proceed from their despising or neglecting the precepts contained in the Bible. So in other words, you look at all the negative things that happen in our nation or in our, in our world, and, and every time you can trace it back to at some level, we didn't follow the commands of, of God and we didn't um, uh, live within the boundaries of what God had given us, so we missed out on the blessings. John Adams said, suppose a nation in some distant region should take the Bible for their only law book and every member should regulate his conduct by the precepts there exhibited. So just imagine, somebody was to say, we're gonna follow the Bible, that's gonna be our, our law book and we're gonna all obey. He said, what a utopia. 
what a paradise would this region be? Andrew Jackson said that the Bible was actually the rock upon which our republic rests. Adams also said the general principles upon which the founders achieved independence were the general principles of Christianity. So if you want to know what the foundation of America is, what were we founded upon? The man that made the Declaration of Independence happen. I mean, without him pushing it through, it would have never happened. He says, we founded this thing on Christian principles. Well, last night we talked about the fact, well, how do you go from founded on Christian principles to fast forwarding 240 years later, and you can't even say the name Jesus Christ at a public school graduation without getting in in big trouble. I mean, the girl in Colorado, they turned the microphone off on her as soon as she says her faith in Christ was part part of what allowed her to be a good student and become valedictorian. The one in Nevada, they, they, they couldn't get to the microphone fast enough, so afterwards they said, you have to issue a public apology for saying Jesus Christ at the graduation or we won't give you your diploma. That kind of stuff is happening all over the culture. So how did we get there? Well, we just don't know where we came from. We, we, we've forgotten our history. We've forgotten to tell the stories of what God did in our history. This guy here is Benjamin Rush. He's um, uh, one of the signers of the Declaration. He's also the, the father of our public school system under the Constitution. He was a doctor. He's a true Renaissance man. A lot of things we could talk about Rush. But here's what he said about Christianity and our faith. He said, Christianity is the only true and perfect religion And in proportion as mankind adopts its principles and obeys its precepts, they will be wise and happy. The gospel of Jesus Christ prescribes the wisest rules for just conduct in every situation of life. Happy they are who who are enabled to obey them in all situations. He said of the Bible, he said, the Bible contains more knowledge necessary to man in his present state than any other book in the world. By renouncing the Bible, philosophers swing from their moorings upon all moral subjects it is the only, the Bible is the only correct map of the human heart that ever has been established. What's he saying? He said, he's saying the Bible is the instruction manual. And, and, and to, to do away with it and say we don't need it causes us to swing away from all of our moorings. It causes us to lose those morals and it causes us to lead into, into chaos. And uh, the, the fact that the Bible is so instructive in everything in our life is something that we have to remember and then teach even in our classroom. He said of education, the only means of establishing and perpetuating our Republican form of government is the universal education of our youth in the principles of Christianity by means of the Bible. The Bible should be in our schools in preference to all other books because it contains the greatest portion of that kind of knowledge which is calculated to produce private and public happiness. The great enemy of the salvation of man never invented a more effective means of removing Christianity from the world than by persuading mankind that it was improper to read the Bible at schools. The Bible when not read in schools is seldom read in any subsequent period of life. So he said, if you want to have a good culture, good society, make sure you got the Bible because it's got all the answers. It's, it's got every answer to every issue that you might face. And so let's make sure we're teaching young people from the beginning. We use the First Amendment wrongly these days to remove the Bible from classrooms when, in fact, the guy that wrote the First Amendment was a man named Fisher Ames. He's the guy in the house that wrote the First Amendment. He said the Bible should not only be in our, our schools, it ought to be the primary textbook of our schools. Our founding fathers certainly had the Bible in the classroom. In fact, when you go all the way back to the reason for public education, it was to learn how to read the Bible. Because if you want good citizens, you got to study the Bible to be able to be a good citizen and know how to be a good neighbor and know how to treat others with love. So this was the concept that, that they had. And one of my favorite guys that I'll call him President John Hancock. He, uh, uh, we always take Washington as the first president. Hancock was actually uh, president in the Continental Congress and then president under the Articles of Confederation. I can, he's one of my favorite presidents. And here's what he said. He said, sensible of the importance of Christian piety and virtue to the order and happiness of a state, I cannot but earnestly commend to you every measure for their support and encouragement. In other words, I'm recommending getting to God's word for the answers to everything. Not only did he say that privately, this is the part that people sometimes have a hard time grasping. This was public proclamations in a role as a government leader. So we hear all this talk today of separation of church and state, and you're not allowed to have your faith, and you know, the president's not even supposed to call on a, uh, the nation to prayer or have a prayer proclamation. My governor in Texas uh, about 10 years ago got in big trouble for attending a prayer rally. <laughs> he said, well, as long as you're governor, you're not a, a, allowed to attend. It's like saying you can't even go to church, right? I mean, in fact, we've got a case right now we're fighting where, uh, where a teacher was told that they could not attend a church if any of their students attended that church. <laughs> that somehow that would, I mean, think about how crazy we're getting on, on this thing. Well, the guys that gave us the country said, no, 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 the exact opposite. We, we think as part of a nation, you have public acknowledgments of God if we want the nation to be blessed. In fact, these prayer proclamations, we've got a bunch in our library 
Um, if you're not familiar with Wall Builders, we've got a, uh, the largest private collection of founding fathers' documents in the world. So when I'm giving you these quotes, this isn't something that we, you know, one, a professor said that somebody else said that somebody else said we're going to original documentation for uh, the things that we give you. And so we got over 100,000 documents, you know, Bibles, handwritten letters, all, the, all this cool stuff. And, and, and one of the things that we've got a large collection of are these, these prayer proclamations. I mean, they would call as a governor or president, the Continental Congress. I mean, they would call on the state or the nation to prayer, fasting, humiliation. I mean, they got serious about it and said, our nation needs to be in prayer. In fact, here's how Hancock put it in one of his. He said, pray that the kingdom of the Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ, may be established in peace and righteousness among all the nations of the earth. Pray that all nations may bow to the scepter of the Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ, and that the whole earth may be filled with his glory. Pray and confess our sins before God and implore his forgiveness through the merits and mediation of Jesus Christ, our Lord and Savior. I mean, clearly he was a member of the ACLU. It was obvious um, that he, I mean, just listen to what these guys are saying. These are the folks that gave us our nation and and birthed the nation. Uh, Think about our law in terms of the Bible's influence on the law. James Wilson, original Supreme Court justice. So you got six guys originally named to the U.S. Supreme Court. He's the first one George Washington nominated. He had helped to give us the Declaration of Independence and the Constitution, signed both of those, and he influenced the Constitution more than anyone but Gouverneur Morris. So he spoke 168 times. Morris spoke 173 times, but second most influential. And here's what he said. Our human law, so just think of human law, that, that's what your city council adopts, that's what your Congress adopts, that's what your state legislature, so any you know, uh, civil or, or, or criminal law, think of all law, he's saying that law should be based or must rest its authority ultimately upon the authority of that law which is divine, meaning you've got to base your human law on biblical law first. He said, far from being rivals or enemies, religion and law are twin sisters, friends, Mutual assistance, indeed, these two sciences run into each other, meaning they're working side by side to give us a good culture and a good society. John Adams said, it appears to me the eternal son of God is operating powerfully against the British nation. He was watching God's hand in the Revolutionary War. Madison talked about watching God's hand in the way that the Constitution worked. He said it's impossible for the pious man not to recognize in it, meaning the formation of the Constitution and its ratification, uh, in it the almighty hand which was so frequently extended to us in the critical stages of the Revolution. You've probably heard about Benjamin Franklin's speech at the Constitutional Convention, least religious of all of our founding fathers, and yet he got up at the Constitutional Convention halfway through when people were leaving the convention, giving up uh, on being able to, to, to get a Constitution adopted. He got up and saved the day by quoting 11 Bible verses and reminding the other guys at the convention what God had done in the founding of the country. Now, Benjamin Franklin is like the least religious founding father that we've got. But he said to the other guys, he said, in the beginning of the contest with Great Britain, when we were sensible of danger, we had daily prayer in this room for divine protection. Now think about that. He's saying to the other guys, I was in here when we started this thing. He signed the Declaration of the Constitution as well, just like Wilson. He said, I was in here from the beginning and I saw God's hand in everything that we did. He said, our prayers were heard and they were graciously answered. All of us engaged in the struggle must have observed frequent instances of a superintending providence in our favor. And then Benjamin Franklin, probably least religious of the founding fathers other than Thomas Paine, he said, have we now forgotten this powerful friend? Do we imagine we no longer need his assistance? I've lived for a long time, and the longer I live, the more convincing proofs I see of this truth that God governs in the affairs of men. Now, you, you, know, you know this part of the, from the scripture that, he, that he's quoting. He said, if a sparrow cannot fall to the ground without his notice, is it probable that an empire can rise without his aid? We've been assured in the sacred writings that except the Lord build the house, we labor in vain that build it. I firmly believe this and also believe without his concurring aid, we shall succeed in this political building no better than the builders of Babel. I therefore beg leave to move that henceforth prayers imploring the assistance of heaven and his blessing on our deliberation be held in this assembly every morning before we proceed to business as long as the ACLU doesn't find out about it. Last part is fake news, just so you know. Okay. But everything else before that is what he actually said. He actually said more than that. He talked about God illuminating our understanding and all the, that's, Benjamin Franklin, that's our least religious other than Thomas Paine, and he's taking the Bible out, hitting the other guys over the head with it and saying, are y'all crazy? We could not possibly be successful with a constitution and a Republican form of government and a nation that is free without God helping us to design it and solve these big problems. George Washington went on to say about the Constitutional Convention, it demonstrates as visibly the finger of providence as any possible event in the course of human affairs can ever designate it. 
And you say, okay, Rick, fine. So, so some of these guys personally acknowledged God and, and, and had relationships with God, and maybe they weren't atheist, agnostics, and deists like we're, like we're told, which they weren't. 95% of them were outspoken Christians, lived it, talked it, spoke it, wrote it. There's, it's, there's, you just, the evidence is all there. Ten guys that weren't Christians, but they were like Franklin. They, they, they weren't deists. They didn't believe in some watchmaker God that put everything in motion and then had nothing to do with us. They believed God was involved in our lives. They believed in the hand of providence. They did not believe just these ten didn't believe that Jesus was the Son of God. So I can't call them Christians, but I can certainly say they were believers in God, and they certainly were not anti-Christian. Then 95%, most of the founding fathers, were absolutely outspoken Christians. So all of that to say, okay, fine. Well, if they had personal faith, that's one thing. But where does it show up in our founding documents? I mean, how can you say that the Bible can be seen in who we are as a nation and in our Constitution? Now, the Declaration mentions God four times. Uh, the Declaration lays out a concept that keeps God at the center of our equation. That's why it says we hold these truths to be self-evident, that all men are created equal, that they're endowed by their... Notice it doesn't say commissioner or state representative or governor or president. It certainly doesn't say Supreme Court justice. We're endowed by our creator with certain unalienable rights, and among these are life, liberty, and the pursuit of happiness, that to secure these rights, governments are instituted among men deriving their just powers from the consent of the governed. So last night we went through those four major principles. We hold these truths to be self-evident. If you want to have a good culture and a good society, you've got to have truth. But what's that truth based on? It's based on the Word of God. That's why the first paragraph in the Declaration talks about the laws of nature and nature's God, that we see God in nature and we can know that he's real from that, but then we also have his written Word, and it's from that written Word that we understand how to form a society. So knowing truth, uh, endowing, being endowed by the Creator, having God in the equation, this was very important to those guys. But then you get to the Constitution. You say, well, yeah, Rick, but where's the Bible in the Constitution? Well, some guys out of Houston thought, thought this question uh, was, was pr- pretty important. And so they went and studied what was the influence on the founding fathers when they gave us the Constitution. Fifty-five guys framed the Constitution. Thirty-nine signed it. Some of them left the convention before it was, uh, was finished. Some stayed through the whole thing and influenced it but refused to sign. George Mason refused to sign uh, because it didn't end slavery and it didn't have a Bill of Rights. But the 39 that did sign... Uh, I'm sorry, of the 55 that, that framed it, so they influenced what we now have as a U.S. Constitution, these guys at the University of Houston decided to study, and they took 15,000 of their quotes. So as they're quoting and framing, who were they quoting? In other words, what was the influence upon the Constitution, and where did it, where did it come from? So they took these 15,000 quotes, and they said, who was most often quoted by the Founding Fathers? Who influenced them the most? And, of course, Montesquieu in the Spirit of the Laws was way up there at the top. He had 8.3% of the quotes. Blackstone was huge, 7.9% of the quotes. John Locke, 2.9% of the quote. Locke was also influential on the Declaration. His two treatises of government, according to Richard Henry Lee, that's the guy that, that you know, committed treason there at, at, at the Continental Congress and said, these United Colonies are and of right ought to be free and independent states. That's June 7th, 1776. John Adams actually seconded that motion, and the guy taking the journal goes, oh, wait, I better scratch their names out. That's the two heads King George is going to lop off first if he finds, ever gets hold of this journal. So anyway, Richard Henry Lee is the guy that makes the motion, commits treason by making the motion for, for independence, and he said that Jefferson copied the Declaration of Independence almost directly from Locke's two treatises of government. Now, for those of you that might have bought into the idea that John Locke was a, was a deist, you should definitely read his two treatises of government where you'll find almost 1,500 Bible verses on how government should be designed. Now, my copy is 406 pages long. Mine's a 1770, I think, 64 version. I can't remember. Anyway, and, and so if you figure 406 pages, almost 1,500 verses, I mean, that's almost three or four verses a page saying here's how the Bible says we should set up government. So that's a pretty good influence to have. But you look at those, those are pretty good. What was the most influential Influence. <laughs> that was, uh, yeah, anyway, what was the most influential thing on the founding fathers? The Bible, of course, 34% of their quotes. So more than all these guys combined, more than anyone else, that's what was influencing the founding fathers as they designed the Bible. And you see it throughout the Bible, uh, if you know what you're looking for, and you read the founding fathers where they explain, this is where we got the idea for our republicanism, this is where we got our idea for separation of powers, this is where we got the idea for uh, tax exemption for churches. They'll tell you. I mean, separation of powers comes from Jeremiah 17, 9. The heart is evil. No man can know it. Don't put too much power in one person's hands, even if they're a good person. you got to spread that power out. Uh, the, the whole idea of electing leaders of 10, 50, 100 thousands right out of Exodus, that's your local uh, county, state, federal government. So that Republican idea is, is designed right there. So you go through all of these different areas of the Constitution, and they're, and they're describing for you a biblical application of what society should look like. 
In fact, James McHenry, he's one of the signers of the Constitution and a Bible Society founder. He started the Baltimore Bible Society, Maryland Bible Society. He said, Bibles are strong protections. Where they abound, men cannot pursue wicked courses and at the same time enjoy quiet conscience. Public utility pleads most forcibly for the general distribution of the Holy Scriptures. Without the Bible, in vain do we increase penal laws and draw entrenchments around our institutions. In other words, he's saying you can make all the laws you want. The legislature can outlaw bad behavior all they want on paper. But unless you have the Bible permeating the culture and being taught and people being able to have some self-control because of their relationship with the Lord, you can forget whatever you put on paper. In, in, in fact, uh, one of the former speakers of the House, Robert Winthrop, he said, you'll either be ruled by the Bible or the bayonet. And, and what he meant was if you have the Bible in your culture, then people will police themselves more and you won't need so much government. But if we do away with right and wrong, if we do away with we hold these truths to be self-evident, if we go to moral relativism, which means everybody figure it out for yourself, do whatever's right in your own eyes, might be wrong for me, doesn't mean it's wrong for you. When we go that way, which is where we're headed right now as a nation, when you go to moral relativism, now government has to come in and be bigger and stronger just to keep us from raping and killing and murdering each other. We gotta have government constantly stepping in and you end up having to have more and more government just to protect us. That's not what you want either. Uh, So you gotta have the Bible unless you wanna be ruled by the bayonet. Washington put it this way regarding even his troops. He said to the distinguished character of a patriot. He was t- commenting on watching them march in the snow with, with no shoes and, and leaving a, a trail of blood and all the sacrifice that they, that they made. He said to the distinguished character of a patriot, it should be our highest glory to add the more distinguished character of a Christian. See, friends, we at a time of our founding absolutely acknowledged God. We did it publicly, we did it privately, we lived it out, we did our best to follow his commands. Were we perfect? Absolutely not. Did we blow it on multiple occasions? Absolutely yes. But we were constantly trying to come back to a biblical foundation, just like the children of Israel. We're human, we mess it up. But at least we understood that concept of if we want to be free, we're going to have a biblical foundation. So we did acknowledge God in our early parts of our nation, actually for the first you know, roughly 200 years. But then we changed that, and we decided we don't want to acknowledge God anymore. We don't think it's worthwhile to acknowledge God. In fact, we're basically living out Romans 1 right now. There was a time when we knew God, and then we decided not to acknowledge him. Here's how Romans 1 puts it. Because that when they knew God, they glorified him as God. I'm sorry, because that when they knew God, they glorified him not as God, neither were they thankful. So at a time, they, there was a time when they knew God, and then they decided not to acknowledge him anymore. They became vain in their imaginations. And their foolish heart was darkened. Professing themselves to be wise, they became fools and changed the glory of the uncorruptible God into an image made like to corruptible man and to birds and four-footed beasts and creeping things. Wherefore, God also gave them up to uncleanliness through the lust of their own hearts to dishonor their own bodies between themselves, who changed the truth of God into a lie and worshiped and served the creature more than the creator who is blessed forever." And you could take that a couple of different directions. I mean, that's kind of almost the, the worship of nature instead of worshiping God. It's that, it's that idea that, uh, that we're going to worship what he created and not even acknowledge who he is. Uh, it's also even ignoring basic science and deciding that we're going to be God in terms of gender and all the things that we're, that we're doing now. There's a lot of things we're seeing out of Romans 1 now. For this cause, God gave them up unto vile affections. For even their women did change the natural use into that which is against nature. And likewise also the men, leaving the natural use of the woman, burned in their lust one toward another. Men with men, working that which is unseemly, and receiving in themselves that recompense of their error, which was meet. And even as they did not like to retain God in their knowledge, God gave them over to a reprobate mind to do those things which are not convenient. Being filled with all unrighteousness, fornication, wickedness, covetousness, maliciousness, full of envy, murder, debate, Deceit, malignity, whisperers, backbiters, haters of God, despiteful, proud, boasters, inventors of evil, evil things, disobedient to parents, without understanding, covenant breakers, without natural affection, implacable, unmerciful, who knowing the judgment of God, that they which commit such things are worthy of death, not only do the same, but have pleasure in them that do them. In other words, celebrate what others are doing. I know everybody gets nervous on, when you get to Romans 1 here. They're always worried you're going to do a whole sermon on homosexuality. That's not what this is, okay? Uh, but it is listed. It's part of this. But there's also a whole lot of other things listed here as well. And I would venture to guess that every one of us in this room are guilty of at least one or more or a lot of those different things that are listed here, right? We're all broken. We're all uh, flawed. We're all uh, not righteous. There is none righteous, no, not one. And so the question is, how do we keep from 
allowing our culture to be given over to this entire list of things that are clearly not good for a culture. Well, we acknowledge God. We keep God in the retention of our knowledge, and we keep coming back to that foundation. What we want to avoid is what it said in, 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 uh, in verse 21 and verse 28. When they, even though they knew God. So even though they knew God, if you look at some translations, even when they knew God, they decided not to glorify him as God. They weren't thankful. They became vain in their imaginations. Their foolish heart was darkened. Professing themselves to be wise, they became fools. And then 28, even, if, even as they did not like to retain God in their knowledge. So if you just think about that from a practical perspective, that's what we've been doing as a nation. We started saying in 1962, no more acknowledging God. We don't believe that you should be able as a nation to acknowledge God. So we took an official position through our Supreme Court to say that actually in Abington v. Murray v. Collette, they said having the Bible in schools and reading the Bible in schools would cause brain damage. All right, that we, we can't influence people in that way. We're not going to allow that to happen in our schools. Now they started the year before with saying no voluntary prayer in school. That was Ingle v. Vitale. So it was first no prayer in school, then it was no Bible. Bible in schools. Um, and, and by the way, here's the good news. We've started winning cases left and right all over the country on this on getting the Bible into schools. And so uh, National Council on Bible Curriculum in Public Schools, now on about 5,000 campuses across the country, we're turning this around. We're getting the Bible back into the classrooms. That's a really, really good thing and a critical thing for, for who we are. Thanks for giving me a chance to take a breath, too. Um, I know you were thinking when Rob said we got a text and sharing, you expected me to come up here and say, thank y'all for having me. I'm on a share. If I talk like this, we wouldn't be done with this message until Tuesday night. All right. So anyway, I, I am actually like, like David Barton. We both have been accused of talking about 90 words a minute with gust up to 350. <laughs> and so this morning, because I was trying to fit it all in, I started at 350 and now we're going to ramp on up to about 750. But anyway, so I apologize for going, going so fast. I'm sure somebody's recording you can get it later. But, um, not only we say no prayer, no, no, no Bible. Now we say no, you know, praying at football games. You can't, you know, pledge of allegiance even is supposedly unconstitutional because it has under God in it. The very reason that Eisenhower pushed for under God being added to the pledge was to distinguish between communism and our system of freedom, to say that in communism, your freedoms and your rights come from the state, and in the American system, freedom and rights come from God, and then the people create the state in order to protect the rights that God gave us. So the whole reason we have it in the pledge is to acknowledge how our system works and how important it is to keep God in the equation. But of course, now you can't, you know, we're arresting pastors for praying on the sidewalk. We arrested a pastor in Phoenix, put him in jail for 60 days for having a Bible study that was uh, too big according to the zoning authority, even though if he'd been having a Super Bowl party, they'd have been fine with it, but because it was worshiping and having a religious ceremony, uh, they put him in jail for not obeying their rules for how that should work. We run people out of business for not participating and celebrating, just like we just read in Romans 1, uh, we probably shouldn't be doing, uh, not celebrating things that violate their conscience, and, and uh, you know the, the whole idea of the First Amendment is, is to have freedom of conscience, that your mind is your property and, and your ability to believe as you believe and not be forced to, to profess things and do things that are, that are against that. So we're, we're running against that now, and we don't, don't even want to uh, not only not teach the Bible in school, but not even the basic Ten Commandments upon which our law was built. In fact, the, the court ha- had this to say about the Ten Commandments. They said in Stone v. Graham, if, if you put the Ten Commandments on a wall in a school, they said the kids might see them. If they see them, well, they might read them. And if they read them, they might study them. And if they study them, the Supreme Court was aghast. They might obey them. Don't kill. Don't steal. Don't lie. Don't commit adultery. These are good things to be teaching our kids. And when we remove all of those concepts, we cannot possibly think that our culture is going to be better it's going to become worse because we take away respect for life. We take away respect for our fellow man. We take away the whole concept of what love really means in treating our fellow man the way that, that we want to be treated. And so that's, that's where we've ended up. Aren't you glad that you came this morning so I could depress you? I'm not going to leave you there, all right? That's just the truth of where we are as a country. We knew God. We decided not to acknowledge him as God, and we're now living with the results of that. Now for the good news. The good news is that God's rules don't change. His truth doesn't change, and the beauty of his system and the blessings that we find when we live within his boundaries don't change. He still rewards us. He, he still gives us uh, the, 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 the natural result of following his laws. Here's the way I look at it. This, this is kind of like a, let me take that off of there. This is kind of like an instruction manual for life. God gave us in the Bible, he said, hey, I know, I know a little bit about how you're made because I designed you. I made your brain, I made your body, I made your emotions. I know 
what will cause you to have the most joy and, and impact in life. If you'll follow the instruction manual, some good things are going to happen. If you ignore the instruction manual, I promise you some bad thing, things are going to happen. So he gave us this instruction manual. What a blessing. I used to think of this as just, you know, God's rules. He's trying to tell me how to live. And I, I'm not free if I have to follow these, these rules. Instead of going, wait a minute, this is the creator, the maker trying to help me out. But, but instead, I'm saying, no, I don't want to follow those rules. I want to do what I want to do. That makes about as much sense as me taking my Dodge Ram pickup and going to the gas station and getting ready brand new. I'm going to fill it up for the first time, and I take out the instruction manual out of the glove box, and I look in the instruction manual. It says, use gasoline. And I say, well, I want to use diesel. And it says, use gasoline. And I say, well, this is my truck. I'm going to do with my truck what I want to do with my truck. Ain't nobody going to tell me how to, how to drive my truck or what to put into my truck or who to love with my truck and all this good stuff. And I decided I'm going to do what I want to do with my truck. Forget that user's manual. I don't care what the creator or the manufacturer did. I'm going to do whatever I want to do. How far do you think I'm getting out of that driveway? Not very far, right? I'm going to suffer the consequences of ignoring the maker and ignoring the instruction manual. How much more fun can I have in that Dodge Ram pickup if I follow what the rules are of how it was made by the manufacturer? That's what this is. God gave us his great instruction manual. He taught us. That's why the founder said, keep the Bible in the forefront of the culture. And that way, we get to be, as the church, a blessing to the people around us. Even if they don't believe like us, we are salt and light to the community, meaning as salt, we're the preservative. We're, we're what's going to help preserve a free nation to be able to be passed on to future generations. And we're actually bringing out the flavor of life. By being salt and light in the community, we're actually making that community and state and nation be able to enjoy the freedom that God has given our nation. But to do that, we have to take the Bible and apply it to every area of life and not imagine that politics is off limits or business is off limits or, or any of those things. In fact, Charles Finney, in the Second Great Awakening, he, he put it this way. Don't get confused. It's not John Travolta in, in Staying Alive. I know it's a little... Um, I, we, we've, we've uncovered the fact that, that, that it was actually Charles Finney that inspired his character in Staying Alive. Um, and so he, well, that's fake news too. Don't use that one. All right. Um, but, but, but Finney put it this way in the Second Great Awakening. He said, the church must take right ground in regards to politics. Whoa. Man, people get really nervous when you say that. Church and politics. Wait a minute. We're supposed to keep those as far apart as possible. No, listen to what he's saying. He's saying politics? Well, that's just part of a religion in a country such as this. And Christians must do their duty to their country as a part of their duty to God. He said God will bless or curse this nation according to the course Christians take in politics. So what he's saying is politics is just part of our religion, meaning politics, just like business, just like family, just like entertainment, just like every area of the culture and every area of our life is part of our religion. Why? Because our religion, our faith does not just apply to certain areas. You would never leave on, on, on Sunday afternoon and go, man, boy, Pastor Rob, he preached a, he preached a great sermon this morning on, on, on family life and, and, and how to honor your spouse and, and, and how to build up your children and all this good stuff. You'd be driving home and saying, oh, honey, that was a great sermon. Pastor Rob was on fire. That was great. Man, I really wish we could go home and apply that. But there's a separation of home and church. So, you know, it was a good message. The Bible had some good stuff to say, but well, we can't, you know. What if, the, what if he preaches a good sermon on how you, how you treat your employees and how you serve your employer and how you do well in the workplace and how to, how to bless people? That's the beauty of free enterprise, by the way. You aren't blessed with people's dollars unless you bless them with a good or, or service, right? So that's why it, it works so well. But anyway, so he preaches a good sermon on all that stuff and you're driving home. Says, Man, that was so good. I wish I could take that to work tomorrow. But there's a separation of work and church. Why do we do that on Tuesday when it's time to vote? Why don't, we, why don't we say, man, that was a good sermon on what leadership's all about, biblical leadership or how government ought to look. You read the Bible, how much it talks about what government ought to look like, what laws ought to be. But, oh, we can't take that in on Tuesday and vote. I can't, there's a separation of church and state. It's an absolute lie. So separation of church and state simply means not having the Church of England run the country. It, it simply means if you elect a president, you don't want who, whatever denomination that, that president has, that, 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 that he or she then can make everybody in the nation go to that church and worship at that particular church. That's what we were trying to stop with this idea of separation of church and state, which is a phrase that's not in the Constitution, by the way. It's not in, in any founding document. It's never in a, in, in passed as a law by Congress. It's in one letter of one founding father, Thomas Jefferson, and that's a whole other story. Um, should have come last night if you didn't. We talked a little bit about that. But um, anyway, you, there, there, there's, a, there's a whole story behind that that will help you understand why separation of church and state 
state is a lie that has been foisted upon the culture, and we've actually turned the First Amendment upside down now, and we use the First Amendment instead of, instead of protecting your free exercise of your faith, we are now using the First Amendment to prevent you from exercising your faith in public and force you to bring your faith only into, into the church. So that's not what we want. What we want is to recognize that politics is just part of my faith. It's just part of my religion. And, so, and what he means by in a country such as this is what I was saying earlier about your Caesar. So in a country such as this, we the people call the shots. So if we the people are calling the shots, then politics is part of our religion. It means when you do your duty as a citizen, you're living out your faith, and the Bible has to inform how you do that and what your positions will be. So don't buy into this secular spiritual split. It's an absolute, absolute lie. We need to be salt and light in every area of the culture, regardless of what your, your profession is or what you've been called to. I want to tell you this story real quick about uh, the Reverend John Peter Gabriel Muhlenberg, because I think it exemplifies all of this. He was, he was a pastor in, in Virginia. Um, this, is, this is actually Pastor Rob when he had, had uh, darker hair. Um, and uh, this, this is the story of Pastor Rob in the founding era, essentially. Okay, so, so his name's John Peter Gabriel Muhlenberg, pastor of a couple of churches, two small churches in Virginia, but also a member of the legislature. So like your pastor serving in, in the church and in the community, he was doing the same thing, serving in, in, the, in the Virginia legislature. And, and, and the war was just starting to happen. I mean, Concord and, and Lexington had happened. Uh, Virginia was now finally in the fight. The British had taken the munitions, and Patrick Henry had rounded up the 5,000. They were going to get the gunpowder back. And he's um, trying to get back to Woodstock, Virginia in time to preach on Sunday morning. So he knows what's happened. The folks back in the church don't. He gets to church just in time. He gets up. He, he preaches. He's got his clerical robes on. He preaches out of Ecclesiastes. He says there's a season for everything, a time for this, time for that. He gets to a time of peace and a time of war. And he closes the Bible, closes in prayer. And instead of going in the back and disrobing and, and coming out front to meet everybody, he starts disrobing right there in front of the whole church. And, and underneath his clerical robes, he's in the full-dress military uniform of of an officer in the, in the Revolutionary Army. And he says to his church, he says, this is no longer a time of peace. It's a time of war. Has the guys outside start playing the drums, calls his men to arms. 300 men out of his two churches join up and become the 8th Virginia Regiment. He goes on to become a major general, one of only 13 guys to, to do that. You can see his painting at the, at the Capitol when you go into the rotunda. It's one of the eight paintings there, and you'll see him. He's the tallest one on the, on the right there, John Peter Gabriel Muhlenberg. Well, pastor serving in, in, in an amazing way. He's got a brother that says to him basically what, what you'll hear from people when you say, I want to I influence the world around me with my faith and, 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 and actually influence uh, politics as well. His brother was Frederick Augustus, and Frederick Augustus Muhlenberg writes him and says, you shouldn't be doing this. You ought to be a pastor. You ought to just be preaching the gospel and not trying to be out there in quote-unquote politics. Here's how he said He said, you would have acted for the best if you had kept out of this business from the beginning, I now give you my thoughts in brief. I think you were wrong. And they get in a, in a fight through their letters back and forth. They're arguing. And John Peter says, I am a clergyman. It's true. But I am a member of society as well as the poorest layman. And my liberty is as dear to me as it is to any man. Shall I then sit still? Heaven forbid it. I'm convinced it's my duty so to do. And duty I owe to God and my country. And he goes on and fights. Frederick Augustus says, ah, you're just, you know, you people in Virginia, you got all those rabble-rousers down there, Patrick Henry and whatnot, and we're fine up here in New York. No, we don't have to deal with any of this stuff. If y'all stop agitating the British, we'd be fine. British come into his hometown there in New York, kick him out of his church, make him watch as they desecrate the church. And he says, hmm, maybe Brother John was smarter than I thought. He gets so involved at that point, the guy that said don't get involved, gets so involved, if you take out a copy of the Bill of Rights, you're going to see two signatures on it. John Adams, because he's vice president, therefore president of the Senate, and Frederick Augustus Muhlenberg, speaker of the House in our very first Congress under the United States Constitution. He helped to give us the Bill of Rights, and his brother John Peter was one of the other congressmen. So two of the 90 that gave us the Bill of Rights were these two pastors serving in the public arena, taking the Bible into culture and influencing the culture in that way. That's the model. That's what we need to be doing more of. You guys are setting an example for churches all across the nation, of how to be salt and light. As a pastor, how to lead both in the church and in the community. As a church, being able to, to answer the needs in the community, to respond uh, to tragedy, to respond to, to needs, to, 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 to be literally the epicenter of the community. I mean, that's what the church was designed to do. That, that's why whenever, whenever we give to the church and the church is able to meet needs in the community, government doesn't have to grow as much. You know, a lot of my conservative friends will always complain about how big government is. And I say, well, what are we doing through the church to take care of those needs so that the government doesn't have to do those things? I mean, the Bible does not say for the, the government to take care of the poor at all. It says for us to take care of the poor, 
right? We're individually and through our church is supposed to do it. But if we abdicate our responsibility, as Pastor Rob says, we, then, then, then somebody else is gonna have to step up and do it. So we can, we can absolutely do that. So I actually wanna leave you with a couple of challenges uh, to do what the founding fathers did. Now, not the full extent, they gave everything, okay? When they pledged lives, fortune, sacred honor, they gave lives, fortune, sacred honor. It wasn't just a, a signature on a piece of paper, you know, sign a petition and hope, hope things go well. No, they gave it. They watched their sons die in the war. Nine of them did not survive the revolution. The wives sacrificed greatly. They gave uh, their, their fortunes. They gave everything. I'm asking you to give a little bit, all right? I'm just asking you to spend a little bit of time each week investing and in being a good citizen. Begin to study the things that will help you Live this talent. It's the parable of the talents. God's given you the talent. Uh, are you going to be the wicked and slothful servant that buries the talent? Or are you going to be the servant that works the talent, multiplies the talent, invests in the talent, makes that thing prosper for future generations? A couple of ways you can do that. Study the Constitution itself. We've got a duty and responsibility as citizens to know what our governing document is. John Jay was uh, one of the framers, one of the 55 that gave it to us, also one of the three that did the Federalist Papers, and became the first Chief Justice of the United States Supreme Court. He said every member of the state ought diligently to read and study the Constitution. So don't just read it. You've got to study it to know what did, they actually, what did that word mean 200 years ago. Not what does it mean today. What did it mean then? The original intent is what you're looking for. He said, and teach the rising generation to be free. Exactly what we read in Psalm 78. How do we teach the rising generation to be free? We tell them the stories. We show them how this works. By knowing their rights, they'll sooner perceive when they're violated and be the better prepared to defend and assert them. If we know what our rights are, if we're studying the Constitution, we'll recognize when government is out of whack, when it's violating those rights, and then we can peaceably constitutionally stand up and defend and assert them. We have all the tools we need at our fingertips to live out a biblical worldview of government and be that salt and light within the community. So study the Constitution and study the Founder's Bible. I really encourage you to stop by Brad's table back there and get a Founder's Bible. If you haven't read through that yet, there is something special about reading God's Word and then immediately reading the history and the story, just like Psalm 78 says we should do, about how the founders applied that particular scripture to life and to community and, and, and to culture. I'm, I, I just read through the whole thing cover to cover over the last 14 months. I try to read through the Bible every year, every 12 months, because that's what the founders did. I didn't make it with the founders' Bible because there was a lot more to read. Uh, but, in, but, but after 14 months, I'd read it cover to cover. And I'm telling you, there were just powerful, powerful moments in, in reading that. So I really encourage you to study that. It'll help you to be a better citizen as you're, as you're studying God's Word. So study the Constitution, study the, uh, the Founder's Bible, and then study the candidates. Know, know what you're doing when you go in and vote. Don't just go in and, 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 and vote Republican or go in and vote Democrat. We need to stop saying, what does the Republican Party platform say? What does the Democrat? We need to say, what does the Bible say? What does the Bible say my position should be on this issue? And then not so much what that person's party is, what are their principles? What do they stand for? And, and, and I know sometimes you'll look at the candidates and say, man, there's just no good choices. I'm not, I'm not going to. A lot of my friends will be like, I'm not voting. I will not vote for the lesser of two evils. To which I always respond, unless Jesus Christ is on the ballot, you will vote for the lesser of two evils. There is none righteous, no, not one, not even Pastor Rob. Sorry, brother. He's not perfect, right? There's no such thing as a perfect candidate. I've yet to find a candidate I agree with 100% of the time. I don't even agree with myself 100% of the time. There is one person on the planet that I will agree with 100% of the time, and you know who that is, men? My wife, that's right, buddy. She's right, whether she's right or wrong, she's right. Okay, the point is, do the best you can with what you got where you are, and then work hard to have better candidates next time out of our churches, out of, out of, the, out of our communities of faith that will, run, that will run for office. So study those candidates and make sure you go vote. I take uh, Noah Webster's advice on this. He said, when you become entitled to exercise the right of voting for public officers, let it be impressed on your mind that God commands for you to choose for rulers just men who will rule in the fear of God. The preservation of our government depends on the faithful discharge of this duty. If the citizens neglect their duty and place unprincipled men in office, the government will soon be corrupted. Laws will be made not for the public good, so much as for selfish or local purposes. Corrupt or incompetent men will be appointed to execute the laws. The public revenues will be squandered on unworthy men and the rights of the citizens will be violated or disregarded. If our government fails to secure public prosperity and happiness, it must be because the citizens neglect the divine commands and elect bad men to make and administer the laws. So it's our choice. In America, we get to choose who our leaders are gonna be. 
And sometimes you may feel outnumbered. I'm telling you, I believe California can be a can glorify God in its government. I believe I am not like a lot of my friends that have given up on California. They're like, I mean, they've get some some people have given up on the whole country. They, they it's all over. Grab your guns and canned food. Go hide out at the ranch. You know, I mean, they're just depressing, right? They just it's like they got this black cloud follows them around, like they've been weaned on a pickle. I mean, they're just they're just not not the kind of people. They're the kind of people that could light up a room by leaving right? That's not the people you want influencing your attitude. And remember the joy that we have is based on our salvation, right? So our joy comes from whose we are, not where we are or the circumstances. We can be joyful in the toughest of circumstances. And so I just want to say to you in California, don't give up on your own state either. There's a lot of us, even some Texans, some proud Texans, uh, that, that are really pulling for you guys. We see that I, I get to go do churches like this around California, constitution classes around California, and I see, I literally, I believe millions in California that love the Lord, that want to see a biblical worldview again, that love our country, that haven't given up. So don't despair and know the pendulum swings, and when we come back to God's word, just like the children of Israel, when we stop being so focused on ourselves, we come back to applying his word, really good things happen, and they're happening in places all across California as well. Last thing, uh, and you can get some more of that, that good news and that optimistic attitude by listening to our radio program, Wall Builders Live. Uh, share that with your, you know, on Facebook and Twitter and give other people the chance to learn some constitutional nuggets about who we are as a nation, but also to just be encouraged because they'll hear positive stories and, 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 and good reports. And uh, I mean, every time we've had Rob on, it's, it, we get great responses from people around the country going, man, I, I want a pastor like that. I want to see pastors involved across the country like that. And so it's, it's a great program to, to keep your attitude up. And then um, when it comes to that passing of the torch and teaching the next generation, we've got a program uh, I'm very proud to say makes a big difference. I, I'm very uh, confident when you send your young people to our program at Patriot Academy, we send you back leaders. All right? It's a great chance for 16 to 25-year-olds to really understand the country and then be good citizens. They don't have to want to run for office. It's just, do you want to be a leader in whatever area God's put on your heart? We can help you uh, to, to, to engage in that and mo- most of all, be a good citizen while you're doing it. So Patriot Academy, I can answer questions at the back about that, patriotacademy.com if you don't get a chance to stop by. So do these two things. Live your freedom. Don't, don't be the wicked and slothful servant that buries it and doesn't participate. Live it out and, and do that wisely. Study those candidates. Go in and do the best you can with what you got. And then pass the torch. Teach the next generation. Teach your children. Uh, raise them to be patriots. Talk about the, the sacrifices. I mean, I, I love the fact that your church honors those who've sacrificed, those who are servicing in uniform, in the military, are our first responders. Uh, get, your, get your kids to, to respect that and honor that and to want to be part of uh, preserving what we've got. So that's your life. Your fortune means just invest in freedom, sponsor kids to Patriot Academy, give more to your church so your church can be the epicenter of the community and meet the needs of the, of the folks in your community. Um, I always tell people, you know, if you're conservative, the problem with being conservative is being conservative, Start giving, start investing in freedom and in your church to be able to be, be that wonderful uh, epicenter of the community. And then lastly, just speak truth. Just be willing to, uh, to a culture that you may think doesn't want to hear it because of the vitriol, that, the vitriol that's in our, kind of our, just the way that it, a lot of it's just really hateful out there um, right now. You may think they don't want to hear it. I'm here to tell you, I work with young people all year long. They are hungry for truth. They're tired of the shifting sand and the, and, and, and the, and the un, instability of, of nothing being right or wrong or, or truth. They want truth, and you've got it. You've got the light of the world. Go out there and be that reflection of hope and light. Speak truth in love, but speak truth with moral clarity and make sure that we're influencing in that way. I'll leave you with one final quote. It comes from John Adams. Benjamin Rush had asked him whether or not we would win. In the, in the war, if we, if we declared independence against uh, Great Britain. And John Adams' response right there in, con- in the Continental Congress wasn't, wasn't a you know, military strategy. It wasn't, wasn't a uh, uh, you know, deal about freedom and civil rights. He said, yes, we'll win if we fear God and repent of our sins. Wow. Start with the basics, right? If we want to be biblical citizens, if we want to be a nation under God, we've got to be a people under God. And if we're truly under God, then we're saying, thank you for that instruction manual. I'm going to follow that instruction manual, and I'm going to apply it to every single area of my life, including how I vote, including how I serve my neighbors and the people in, in my community. Thank you, God's Big Calvary Chapel, for being a beacon and a light to other people around the country. Pastor, God bless you.